Hello, this is Joel Johnson with another Rainmaker Revolution podcast. We've got a special guest today, um, but before we get to that, as always, make sure that you run anything that you implement uh, that you hear here today through your compliance department. We don't want you uh, guys doing anything that is not, guys and ladies, we don't want you doing anything that is not kosher as far as regulators, and you are responsible for that. So you can't hold me, Jonathan, I'll tell you who's our guest in a minute, um, or Advisors XL or anybody else responsible, uh, you're responsible for your own compliance. With that said, once again, uh, I am really excited. We have Jonathan Musgrave, CEO of Steep Digital Marketing with us today. And uh, we have been using Steep for, oh my goodness, a year and a half, maybe two years, but at least a year and a half now with, with great results. And so we're going to have a general conversation about digital marketing, Facebook marketing, um, other types of digital or uh, online marketing. And then we'll drill down deeply into what makes things different when we are marketing to prospective clients in our financial services business, because obviously we're not selling a tangible product. And so with that said, Jonathan Musgrave, welcome to the program. Good morning, Joel. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, good, good. I'm excited too. Tell us, um, who is Jonathan Musgrave? Tell us a little bit about uh, outside business. Who are you? What do you like to do? So on. Well, I love snowboarding, everything that makes Colorado a cool place to live. My wife and I have a little cabin up in the woods uh, near Breckenridge, Colorado, and we do uh, some backcountry snowboarding and uh, hiking and whatnot up there. Um, other than that, um, I'm borderline a crazy cat person. We have three cats at our house and one dog, so that keeps us busy at home. Um, and then, uh, of course, running things here at Steep, we have about 22 staff people that we're working with all the time. So uh, always something to keep you busy when you've got that many different things that you're working through. So let me back up just a minute here um, because I paid a lot of money to stay in Breckenridge a couple years ago. So, so what you're saying is you have this cabin I didn't know about. Maybe we didn't know each other back then. But when you, when you say backcountry snowboarding, is that where you actually hike up the hill? in the snow and then you turn around and go down or do you get dropped by a helicopter or what is that exactly? Yeah. Helicopter is my dream, which I haven't done before, but backcountry snowboarding, I have this snowboard that called a split board. And, uh, when you're riding, it looks normal like a snowboard, but when you're climbing up the hill, the bindings come off, the snowboard splits in half down the middle and it turns into skis and you apply these skins to the bottom of it that gives it traction and you put them on like you would skis and you can just climb right up the mountain. When you get to the top, you take the skins off, reattach it into a snowboard, and you ride back down. So um, it's a lot of fun. It gives you access to places you don't normally go and really good snow conditions. You can kind of just follow the snow wherever it goes and find some good stuff. But there's a lot of avalanche risk and training that goes into that. So we've been super active the last few years going to courses to prepare for that and always bring in equipment to, to be sure we're safe. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. So this is where when I'm driving, like, between – I remember up up by A base and there were all these cars parked on the side of the road and you could tell people were hiking up the hill and so on. It's it's very likely they're doing that with snowboards or skis, right? Exactly. Yep. A base okay. in Loveland Pass, that area is fantastic for it. So that's what they're doing. All those crazies out there. Awesome. Awesome. So how did you get into the whole digital marketing business? Did you start right out of school? Did you work for somebody else for a while? What How, how did that all work? I don't know that there's a lot of people who are digital marketers that like trained for it. Maybe today there are, but I think especially at the time I got into it, it was something you kind of just learned. Um, and my first job out of college, I worked for an FMO and I was hired when there were just six people at that group. 
And by the time I left, there were 45 people there. And my job, Joel, was to run a print shop. And I sent over a million pieces of mail for seminars all across the country. And um, after doing that for a few years, I thought I knew everything I needed to know about FMOs. And I started my own um, wholesaling group, an AFMO, uh, with two other partners. And after two years of just really struggling, trying to do what everyone else was doing out there, uh, we decided we've got to try to do something different. And my, my function at that group of three people was to be the marketing guy. And so I decided to really do everything I could to try to learn about digital. I spent like $100,000 I didn't have going to trainings and learning from people outside the business to try to figure out how to apply the digital stuff that's built, building other people's businesses to the financial space. And so really started doing 100% digital in around 2014. And then, you know, gone through everything from Google AdWords and webinar marketing to kind of what we're doing now at Steep, which is a lot of Facebook advertising and event uh, promotion. So. Um, kind of a, a wide breadth of experience there, but, you know, kind of a lot of it was born by just necessity. Like, hey, what was working before wasn't working now, and I needed a way to try to differentiate my business. And so so you were with the FMO, you went and started your own AFMO, then you kind of backed off being an FMO, AFMO, which is always looks easy until you try, right? <laughs> and, and, and so you started completely completely a digital marketing agency were you were you selling your services to anybody else were you um were you in the financial services business yourself and you were just using that as a marketing funnel or how did that work yeah so i went through a period of time where i thought i wanted to be an advisor joel i i got my i took all the cfp testing and i had my insurance license and was studying for the 65 and then um that's when i left and started um the afmo so I never really pursued that. I did some personal insurance business and that sort of thing, but never really developed into that. But um, I think the genesis into you know doing this as a service is just the FMO world is tough. And I think everybody sees people making money hand over fist at the FMO level. And you think it's easy, like you mentioned, but in reality, it's a really tough game, especially when you're a small player. You know, you're sometimes, I, I hate to say this, but you're the girlfriend on the side and, you know, someone's got a more primary relationship with a marketing group and they're trying to get some program that you offer. And that's just a really frustrating way to try to make money. You don't ultimately control, at least I didn't control how I made money and it was frustrating. But at the same time, we were doing this marketing that really was effective for advisors and we heard success stories, even if that business didn't come to us all the time. And so I thought, you know, I don't really like not being able to control how I get paid. And I actually think that people are willing and, and have a need for um, digital, digital services. So I actually sold my interest in that company to my partners and then just started um, steep. And I guess I would have been early 2017 in March. Um, and, you know, it's really grown rapidly, I think, because advisors are mainly realizing that this really is an important thing that we need to focus on our practices. So tell me how it's different. We're, we're selling a, what are we selling? Um, we're selling an experience. We're selling somebody coming to a workshop to learn about something they're concerned about. You know, I think if we get out of the financial services business and I said to somebody online marketing, they're thinking of supplements. They're, you know, people that know a little bit about the field. They're thinking of supplements, coaching programs, um, so on and so forth, where typically there's some kind of a Facebook ad or somebody's got this massive email list or they're doing something in what's called affiliate, we'll just call it partnership, where they're, where they're kind of using somebody else's email list and they're blasting out either emails or they're running Facebook ads 
to get somebody involved. Maybe they get a free giveaway. Maybe they get a free 15-minute seminar. Um, maybe the first purchase of their monthly subscription vitamin purchase is free or something like that. But they're either selling this aspirational dream of turn your life around by, by coming into my coaching program or they're selling um, maybe vitamins or a workout program or, or something like that. How is the space that we're in where we're trying to get somebody to either opt in and get a free book so we can get them into our email list or we're trying to get them to a seminar like Steep does, how is that different? Yeah, I think that's a really insightful way to look at this. I think it's almost like the difference between something tangible and something that's intangible. And, you know, the number one most prevalent use for internet marketing today is uh, physical products and e-commerce retailers. I, I know guys told that you would, you would literally, you know, freak out looking at these guys' Amex bills, $100,000 a day selling physical products. And that's just a game. It's like people want to receive a physical good. And then, of course, if you can make a value proposition and deliver it to them in a good offer, they're willing to buy it. When you flip that into something that's services-based, whether it's, you know, information that we're giving them in the form of an ebook or, or something for, for a lead generation, or if it's an event, I think ultimately you're selling an idea. But anything that we can do to try to, I think, productize that and make it sound like easy to get your head around. Um, ideas are really hard. They're conceptual. They're theoretical. And anything we can do to try to make our messages sound more um, tangible and uh, really simple, I think, is really what helps. And I wrote a post a couple, I think it was a year ago now, that call, that says why uh, specificity drives response rate with digital. But I think what it really comes down to is that, you know, if all we do is talk ideas and theories and concepts all the time, it's hard for people to understand that. But if we can make it focused on a single part of someone's life, a single topic, then it, that decision-making process is so much easier and it's so much more rapid. And then there's another whole dynamic that comes into play because we're advertising on a social network. We're not using um, Google search. We're not necessarily using display networks the way that people traditionally have. We're using a social network. And even that kind of curtails how it is that people are experiencing content in the medium that we're advertising on and how we need to kind of adapt our message to have that social feeling to it. So I really think that is the secret sauce. And I know guys who are fantastic at e-commerce retail uh, with advertising that haven't done well in the financial space because selling an idea is tough. But I really think what it comes down to is leading with education, uh, making your ideas simple and and picking a single part of a of somebody's problem, not, not the entire problem. We're not going to get you to retire with success tomorrow. But like what is one specific aspect of that that we can draw attention to and kind of simplify that conversion process? So that's interesting. So what you're saying is instead of the traditional, I mean, let's just take the traditional workshop invitation that gets sent out where, uh, you know, there's, there's six or seven bullet points on it of all these things that are going to be covered in the workshop from tax to estate planning to getting your kids through school. And what you're saying is that does not work in the digital world. What's effective in the digital world is one specific topic that might be just a tight category of the overall thing because people are going to respond to one small problem, correct? Is that is that what I'm understanding? That's exactly it. And and I think here's a silly story that I always tell when when I'm explaining this to someone. But if if you're going to come over to my house in Breckenridge, Joel, and watch a football game with me, and maybe go skiing, and I say, hey, we're going to do um, we're going to we're going to cook dinner, and we're going to have fajitas. Like, bring some stuff for fajitas. You're like. Well, I don't know what Jonathan has. I don't know what he likes. I don't know if he has eating restrictions. And you're like pacing up and down in a, you know, a grocery store, like, hey, do we need tortillas and extra cheese? 
like you have no idea what you're there for. And so you're just, you know, you're taking a lot of time to go through there and choose things. But if I say, Hey, Joel, all I need is some salsa, some sour cream and some tortillas. Then you're on a mission. You walk in, you know exactly what you're there for. You grab the stuff and you walk right out, which by the way, now I want fajitas. So we need to make that happen at some point. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> that sounds really good. I've got an on the border right down the road. So I'm East coast time. So when we get done recording this, maybe I'll head down there Perfect. after I but, go get my flu shot so that I prevent myself <laughs> from getting the, uh, so I got to tell a funny story. This is completely off the, for sure, so, yeah. um, so we have uh, Brian in my office who's awesome just, you know, doing things for employees and so on. So he ha- he sets up this person to come in and give everybody flu shots. And um, the person shows up. Well, we're in this intense meeting with our advisors, a sales meeting with our advisor that we do every Monday morning. And I'm right in the middle of explaining something. And sometimes our sales meetings get a little – not confrontational, but they, they get intense because somebody will, you know, it's very open forum. One of the advisors will say something and it's completely off the wall. And of course I get to, you know, sometimes humiliate the person or, or just artfully turn them around. So we're in one of these moments and Kate comes and knocks on the door and says, the flu shot person is here. And I said, if you think that's more important than this, then feel free to go get your flu shot. And of course, nobody left. Um, and, uh, I didn't leave. So now we got this virus, you know, (laughs) ravaging its way through the world and I'm going to get my flu shot as soon as we're done here. And then I'm going to on the border to get some fajitas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But, uh, so anyway, so backing up, let's get, let's get back to, so that's a good tip. So when we're advertising online, whether it's to our own internal email list or client list, don't barrage them with a lot of things. Be very concrete and tell yeah. people what to do about one specific thing, which is interesting. I remember watching this old Frank Kern video, and he draws a triangle, and he says, you know, there needs to be three parts of this. You tell people what you have. You tell them what it's going to do for them, and then you tell them what to do. And a lot of times in the financial services industry, we give them way too much what we have, what we want for them, instead of just one thing. We don't talk about what our product is going to do for them. We just assume that they understand what the product is going to do for them. And then we never tell them what to do. You know, pick up the phone, call for an appointment, you know, go online and get my free book. And so it's interesting. You're backing that all the way up to the top of that with tell them what you have. And and again, I want to emphasize this for our listeners is you don't tell people you can solve every tax problem they have, put their kids through school, put their grandkids through school. Um, reduce their income tax, create a stream of income that they can't outlive. You're saying in the digital world, actually I would argue that doesn't work anywhere, but in the digital world that doesn't work at all. We need to be very specific and offer one thing. Absolutely. And it's really just, again, simplifying that decision. It's like if you're trying to make three decisions at once, one is, is this information or is any of this information interesting to me? And two is, do I want to go to it? Then you've got multiple choices to make. If you just simply say, hey, this workshop or this offer, whatever it is, is this one thing, you either want it or you don't, and that decision process is is really easy. But I think in addition to making it easier, I think the reason it's so critical with digital is because of the speed involved. Um, the average time that somebody spends on one of our pages is about a minute and 30 seconds, and that includes people who spend you know, two minutes retyping their email address four times and people who just bounce off the page but they don't spend a lot of time on that page. And so we're trying to get that information to them in a really rapid way. 
uh, make that decision process as simple as it possibly can be so that we have a higher opportunity to convert the majority of those people. But speed is one of those things that's just so important to consider when, when we're in a digital format. If you email, so we have 34,000 people that are not clients in our email list. If I was to email one of them that remembers who we are, so they're not clients, but some of them don't even remember who we are. But let's say I was to email one of them who remembers who we are and I'm asking them to open up a link or watch a video versus somebody scrolling through their Facebook feed at night and they see my ad, but they have familiar to my company, what would your guess be? So they see my ad in Facebook, they're somewhat familiar with our company versus the email uh, from somebody that's somewhat familiar with our company. Which one has the highest possibility of opening that link, not the email, but the link, and then the amount of time they would spend, which one would tend to be higher? I think you're going to see more interactions in general with social just because like we can force feed that to people. We just pay Facebook, you know, an average thousand impressions on an ad costs about $12. So, I mean, you could get that message out to your 30,000 people for like really a, like very little money. So I think there's no question that you're going to be able to force feed information to people more rapidly with social. But I think the inbox, and I've got this fantastic, I'll send this to you, Joel, if you want to share it with your listeners, but I'm on, uh, we're Digital Marketer Certified Partners. We get a lot of really good information from Digital Marketer and their team down in Austin, Texas. But there's this resurgence of email newsletters that's happening right now that's causing, I think, what we've all been taught about email to kind of get thrown out the window. Emails can be distracting and, you know, crappy emails get deleted. You'll get sent to junk. People will unsubscribe. Your open rate will plummet. But if you can give people engaging e email messages, the difference with email is that you have undivided attention. And, and there will be other p emails inside people's inboxes, but compared to social where someone's scrolling the length of the Statue of Liberty every single day, you have a, a much more uh, undivided attention platform inside of email. So I think more what I would focus on, Joel, is kind of what sort of messages ma match the platform. I think when you're an email, if you want to really give a concrete idea to somebody and maybe a little bit longer form content, that's a really good place for it. Whereas social is kind of like that rapid fire, here's what it is, you either want it or you don't want it uh, type of messaging. But I think um, kind of the, the idea and the purpose behind that is gonna dictate which one's gonna work better in different platforms. But I will use this as a shameless plug to talk about email newsletters. I really truly believe that that's a huge opportunity for someone like you, Joel, who has 30,000 people in your email list, people that have raised their hands, they've responded to something in the past and just haven't taken that step to come meet with you yet. Um, getting your message out there in a consistent way and giving them value through an email, it might be the most important thing is as we move forward, as prices continue to increase and it's harder and harder for people to acquire a list like that, really giving great content in that email platform is, is really, I think, a, a more critical thing than most people realize. And again, going back to a point you made earlier, so is simplicity still the key? Hit them with one or two subjects? Um, or do you try to run some kind of algorithm where you give them six things and you pay attention to what they click on and then, and then now all of a sudden we're only feeding them what they're interested in? How can somebody that doesn't want to build this whole back-end uh, algorithm and just want to reach their people, what, what should they do? Should they go one subject? I think in emails, um, what I've seen work really well is kind of like short form content with multiple different topics. And it allows you to be able to talk about a variety of different things without 
coming across as salesy. And a good example of this, if you're interested in reading what I'm talking about, there's a, a really good newsletter called The Morning Brew that's kind of like a global phenomenon now. And every morning, and I don't think we need to do it every morning, but every morning they send out about five or six different topics. Hey, the market's freaking out. Hey, coronavirus is doing this. Hey, here's what's happened with political elections. Somewhere in there, they're going to have a little bit about uh, some product or service they offer, maybe an affiliate affiliate deal that they've set up. Um, but it allows you as the reader to kind of pick and choose the different parts that you want to engage with. But then as you as the content provider, you can do a lot of different stuff. You can say, hey, me and my wife went to this new restaurant down the street from us. And, you know, it's in your local area and you're talking about something that's really social. It's really easy for someone to digest. And then right alongside of there, you're talking about the things that really matter to you and I trying to get them involved in some sort of program or service that we offer. So I think that's a really good way to approach it um, with email. I think in social, like a single post can't accomplish four or five different things. And so that's more like having a content mix and, um, you know, posting about a variety of different things, each one in its own post. Um, but I think with email in a nurture sequence, we need to understand where people are at in the funnel. You know, if you look at the funnel, we're all focused at the bottom. People who come into our seminars, people who are coming to our office, people who are coming to second appointments. That's where we really focus. But email is more about like that top to middle part of the funnel where we're still build, building awareness and building credibility and trying to escalate people through that. I think a good way to do that is by having a, a good mixture of content that's easy to engage with and kind of soft content paired with, you know, the occasional, hey, here's the thing that we're doing. Um, kind of within there. Yeah, and this is, uh, I hope people go back and listen to the last five or 10 minutes here because this has been awesome and there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff packed in there that I think can really can really help people reach their audience better. We were at a, um, I was at with about 40 other people, um, kind of this little mini financial services conference out in San Francisco and they brought in Ryan Dice as a as a guest speaker, and he talked for about an hour and a half. And the whole theme of his talk was things that people say don't work anymore that mm-hmm. are going to be huge um, because of what's changing with social media and how much how how expensive it's getting. Not that it's expensive, but how much more expensive. And and a big huge thing was email uh, and email email newsletters. Exactly what you just said. And he even mentioned Morning Brew, but he talked about you know, being patient and having something systematic and having having an email newsletter and and just the power of email that it seems like, at least for me, being a layman outside the true digital marketing expert industry, I was told email was dead, you know, and uh, and now it's getting to the point where I think people have such filters on that if they're willing to open an email from somebody they know, uh, I think you know, what you said, Jonathan, you tend to have somebody that's much more focused on your message. Um, it was also interesting, you know, he did this, he did this thing where, you know, what do you think, he asked everybody, what do you think is the most important part of an email? 80% of the people said subject line. And he goes, no, it's not. It's who it's from. So if you're sending out an email that says contact, you know, it says it's from contact at johnsonbrunetti.com, you're an idiot. You know, you send it out from Joel Johnson or from Jonathan Musgrave or, you know, from a, a, a name that they will recognize. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of good stuff in there. And what you said, um, you know, I hope people, again, go back and, and listen to that. Tell me about – so you've just given us a lot of stuff about, you know, marketing intangible products and so on. So if we look at um, – Brendan Bouchard or Dean or Dean Graziosi or these guys that are kind of selling a dream 
Um, how, because they're not, you wouldn't consider that a tangible product, right? Like no. the whole $49 coaching program and all that stuff. Is that is that a tangible product or is that intangible? I think more often than not, that's a service. I think that's an intangible product. I think guys like Dean, a lot of what they promote are either information products, which are things that you're, it's like a class, or it's an in-person meeting. And that's a lot of times where this sort of coaching goes in place. But to be honest, Joel, like that's not altogether different than what we do as advisors. We're trying to get people to have face-to-face encounters with us, and that's how we do our business. So I think in a way, there's a lot of benefit that we can learn from people like Dean and those guys. I really think what you're doing more than anything is is branding. And, and branding is like a bad word in financial services advertising because we're like, hey, we don't want to build a brand. We want to go straight to the bottom of the funnel. But I think when you watch Dean, and I follow Dean on Instagram, and he's always walking around his pool and he's doing videos and talking about things, he, he very rarely talks about his products and he very rarely talks about what he's doing with people. And really what he's talking about is just, he's trying to help people, he's trying to add value. And, and what that is, is trying to um, get you and I as his listeners and his viewers to understand who he is as a person, because ultimately that face-to-face encounter comes down to whether you engage with him on an individual personal level or not. And there's a lot to be said for that 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 style of branding. I think we think of branding and we think of logos and you know animated videos and like high quality, you know, highlight reels of us on the news and that sort of thing. That that's not really branding. Branding is ultimately getting people to understand who we are as a person and as a business and helping them to connect with this at a lower level. It's kind of interesting, Joel. The very first thing we talked about on this podcast is you said, Hey, Jonathan, who are you as a person outside of work? And it's almost like once you understand who I am as an individual, then maybe you're more susceptible to understand who I am and relate with me on a personal level. And what we're doing with social and email and all this stuff, like that's our personal brand. We're just trying to get people to understand who we are as people. And then, you know, it's, it's the Simon Sinek video. Start with why. Once people understand why you do what you do, then what you do is kind of a byproduct of that. So um, I think there's a lot, I, I guess, to go back to answer your original question, I think they ultimately are more in a services business like we are as advisors. But what they're doing by giving us all of this ancillary content is, is building a brand so that we identify with them and we understand that we're not that dissimilar from them. And then, you know, joining them in some sort of endeavor with a meeting or a course or whatever it is kind of is a natural extension of that brand. Yeah, and one of the things I think advisors need to do, especially, you know, I'm 57, I turned 58 in a few months, but, you know, I got in this business when I was 27. And um, I would encourage advisors out there, ask your parents what they care about, what keeps them up at night. Those are the things that you need to figure out, not how to be them, because nobody will believe if, that a 30-year-old is worried about their grandkids, you know, being addicted or something. But if you can speak in the terms the way your parents speak, assuming they're not, you know, PhDs or quants at Goldman Sachs or something. But if you can speak in the way your parents speak, people will identify with that. Um, The other thing was interesting. I remember 10 years ago, those of us that are Advisors Excel advisors, uh, went to this program that Dan Kennedy did, and it ties right back into what you're saying, Jonathan. It says people, the people that get paid the highest get paid for who they are, not what they do. And he said, if you need an example, look at the Kardashians. They don't make anything. They don't. They just license who they are. And uh, and then look at look at other people like Elvis or so on. And a lot of times, the people that we admire the most, many times, are people that are just genuine, or we think they're genuine, right? 
And so I think that's a great tip, Jonathan, is just, you know, market who you are. I mean, people are attracted to Johnson Brunetti because of the way I communicate. Uh, They like it because I'm down to earth. I don't seem to come off as pretentious or too worried about how I'm coming across. Um, If I do a little TV segment, we're almost always pre-recording and there's mistakes in there. I never change it. Um, We just leave it the way it is. Um, I remember we do this uh, thing up in Boston now where I'm on every Saturday and Sunday morning and it's very professionally done. We've got seven crew people out there. You've got a lights and cameras and a makeup guy and everything. And I can't tell you how often they've said, oh, let's redo that. You said, um, or you stumbled on a word. And I'm like, no way. Just leave it. And, but that's who I am, right? So people are attracted to that. Um, and so you're right. I mean, when I just take buying a car, I'll, I'll buy a car from a guy I like before I buy, before I go down the street to save 50 bucks from a guy I don't like. I just, people like doing business with people. So um, well, I, I, I like really, your point there. That's, that's pure gold right there, being authentic. And I think if you carry that really into the world of advertising where we live primarily on social, you can really not just understand that, but you can see it in data. Because what we're trying to do with social is like, we understand that we're doing advertisements and people who are savvy will see that little sponsored word below the ads that we run. But anything we can do to make that feel as if it's native to the platform and it's authentic content, those things are the type of things that really contribute to high response rate. We had a guy who was doing a brand new program with us and it was something we'd never marketed before. And his conversion cost was two or three times higher than what we wanted it to be. And we reached out to the guy and we said, listen, if you would, if you'd be willing to make a video where you just tell a story and then kind of tie that into your workshop a little bit. We think that would help. And this guy literally sat in his car, Joel. He had a crappy car. It was nothing fancy. He put his camera on the dashboard. The camera was more pointing at the ceiling than it was at his face. He had his seatbelt on and the car was parked. So I'm not sure exactly what he thought was going to happen, but he felt <laughs> felt like he needed a seatbelt <laughs> on. And he told a really bad story about, you know, whatever it was the topic that he was talking about. And then like literally just made a pitch directly for his workshop. But as you scroll through Facebook, you see pictures of people with like taking pictures of their pets or, you know, videos of their walk or their golf game that they're playing, whatever it is. It's these imperfect uh, representations of the life that we live every single day. And when you see a video from a guy like that, it doesn't look like an ad that a professional camera crew recorded to pitch this really high end seminar. It's a guy. It's just a guy like everybody else in their news feed is telling a story. And would you believe it or not, that ad actually reduced his conversion cost by 75%. We got back into like the metric range we were shooting for with our costs and he had a really good event, but it just goes to show that what you're talking about with authenticity and, you know, forgetting about being polished and just really delivering a message and communicating at a human level, probably not just important in general, but specifically with social, it's so, so, so critical. That's so funny. It reminds me. So I was in this study group, this 25K Genius Network thing, and, and I was in there with Dean Graziosi and you know, a bunch of other guys. There were like 30 of us in the room. But Dean told this story about when he first started making money. So this probably goes back like 20 years. And he first started making a lot of money teaching people how to buy and sell real estate. And he was just doing this simple. He'd stand out on the lawn in front of like the first house he bought and talked about how he was a broke mechanic and he started buying houses and so on and so forth. And he was doing really well. And so then he decided to go and he rented a private jet, a TV crew, and did this infomercial with him and the private jet. And, you know, you're going to be a millionaire and so on. And it completely flopped. He lost Hmm. so much money. Because it wasn't him. It, it wasn't 
you know, and it's kind of funny because now you look at him and he's doing this little, you know, flash drive on the private jet thing. But, <laughs> but he still said, I, I, I remember I was in a room with him like a couple of years ago. He still says that is not the most successful ones. The, one, the most successful ones are when I'm in the backyard talking about my kids and all that kind of stuff. So backing up, so 20 years ago. So he spent millions of dollars producing this beautiful segment then buying the TV all over the country and running the thing, and it was a complete flop because, you know, it was like you said. It was all polished. It was all perfect. The lighting was perfect. You know, he's walking into the jet and showing everybody how he's making all this money flying around, and if you, you know, buy my program, you can do it too, and it was a disaster. Mm-hmm. And uh, people really want authenticity. They also want to understand the struggle. You know, nobody cares about – and I just watched this um, – I listened to this uh, – 30 by 30 on Dwayne Wade and the fascinating part the fascinating part of the documentary is not that he's got the championships and all that stuff it's how he grew up and um, you know people want to know the struggle so don't don't make things so sanitized and perfect and like you're the person everybody wants to be um, tell mm-hmm. them the hero's story about how it was a struggle so hey let's um, let's move along here so talk to me about steep what what is we've used it it works um i had to reset my expectations which i'm sure jonathan you talk to a lot of people that try a program or two and you know they call you back and it didn't work like a regular direct mail to seminar thing and so on so talk to us about your philosophy of 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 running the company because it's obviously different than the company i run you're dealing with a different group of people and then how you how you serve your customers? You know, what, is, what does that look like? What are the challenges? Give us a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look on, on what's going on. And then what are the expectations that people have when they use a service like yours that, um, that need to be reset? Yeah, no, that's, that's for sure, Joel. I think one of the things that I realized about a year ago is that, you know, started Steep in 2017 in that partial year, like March, the end of the year, did almost a million dollars in revenue. The next year did $5 million in revenue. Next, last year we almost doubled that number. And so we've seen this exponential growth in the company. But what's happened as that started to, to transpire is that the team naturally needed to grow to be able to service that. I think I learned two really hard lessons over the last you know, 12 months, I think. One is that hiring in our business at the service level is the most important thing to do. And it's something that we were way far behind the curve on. I always had this philosophy that if my business was like a taco truck, it would be okay. And you imagine a taco truck, you might get a tweet on your phone and say, hey, your favorite taco truck is nearby and you wait in the cold and you sit in line for 20 minutes, you order from somebody who doesn't speak your language, you can only pay in cash, your tacos come out like a styrofoam bin, but they're so freaking good that it's worth the bad experience. And I always felt like that was how my business was gonna be. I felt like if I delivered this outstanding product that people were willing to kind of endure the process for, like the only thing that really mattered is that the product was really good. What I've realized over time is that the experience in our business matters as much, if not even more, than the actual product. So filling seminars and delivering leads to people is an important part of what we do. But taking care of people at the end of the day is really the most important thing. Where I got in trouble with that, Joel, is it took me a long time to scale up the services aspect of our business. And I, I worked on building the internal systems and our teams and like production. And really, like myself, I was trying to handle all that uh, myself on the service side. It's just not scalable. And I think you you know, you teach this entire podcast and courses on scalable businesses. It's something I should have learned earlier. 
The second thing I learned is that what helped me be successful initially was the fact that I was a good marketer, but being a good marketer wasn't going to help the business scale. What I needed to do is to change into being a good business owner and to be a good boss and a good manager and a good CEO and be able to run a business. And, and Joel, you know, this as much as anybody, that's probably a bigger skill, a harder skill that you need to attain. And so I've really been challenged in trying to go through some self-development courses and learn from people who are smarter than me to really develop those skills. So I think those are probably the two big takeaways that I've learned in just kind of executing this business and, and things that I need to grow in. Um, when it comes to expectations for advisors, I think that's probably the most critical part of transitioning into anything new. And definitely with digital marketing, um, expectations in digital are different with direct mail. Joel, let me ask you this. If you had a direct mail seminar and you had 80 people signed up for two different events, like how many of those 80 people would you expect to show up to a dinner seminar that you did direct mail with? Uh, 80 people in today's numbers, at least 65, 65. So what is that? An 80% ish attendance rate? Yeah. 70, 70 to 80%. Sometimes used to be, used to be much higher. You know, there's, yeah, we can talk about the reasons another time, but yeah, at least 80%, 70 to 80%. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think my experience with direct mail and working with advisors to do that is the same. When we transition into digital, it's pretty typical to see about a 50% attendance rates. And certainly we have success stories where people have 85% attendance rates, but we also hear bad situations where people have 20% attendance rates. And so I think it's it's really important to understand, hey, if we trans transition mediums and we are advertising to different people with a different way, like we're going to experience different results. So the saving grace with digital is that the cost of acquisition is low enough that we can absorb that 50% decline. But I, I think the really important thing, and Joel, you probably could talk to this more than I can, is that the, maybe one of the reasons that you see that difference in attendance rate is not just that we're advertising with digital, but that you're getting a different type of customer in front of the you than you would see with direct mail. These are the same people that get your direct mail every single month, probably from you and three other competitors too, and they never go. But all of a sudden we hit them with a different message and an educational format on digital and they're willing to attend those events. So I think it's just really important to understand that, hey, there is some trade-off. There's lower cost potentially, but there's also these trade-offs with attendance rates. But understanding that the, the whole purpose of doing this is trying to future-proof our business by using a medium that we haven't used traditionally and also trying to bring in a different customer than what is typically going to respond to the direct mail that we're doing. Yeah, and it's interesting. I was just talking with Lori, my marketing director, this morning, and I said, you know, is the is the customer that comes in from a steep program better, worse? And she said, well, sometimes they're better. Some They're never worse. Sometimes they're better as far as you, we track them all the way through when, when they become clients. You know, we spend $5,000. How many become clients? What's the revenue per client and so on? She said, sometimes they're a lot better. There's always a big client in the audience. There isn't always with a workshop. They're not worse, but they're different. And that's what I contend. They're different. There's a different person that will show up for an event that is educational versus that will show up for an event that's educational, but there's a dinner. Mm -hmm. um, I would never, I'm maybe not the, I'm definitely not the typical prospect, but there are some, some, you know, some parallels here. Mm -hmm. I would never go to somewhere where they were going to feed me. First of all, I don't want to have dinner with somebody I don't know. Um, I barely want to have dinner with my friends. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll talk to friends, but, you know, the idea of spending 
three hours is not super exciting unless we're doing something really cool like going to a football game or something um, or, or racing cars. Um, but I would go to an educational event. I would go to an event where I know I'm going there for a certain reason. I'm going to get some value. I'm, I'm going to walk away with a, with, a, with a binder or a notebook, um, and it's specifically the topic I want, and I'm going to be in and out of there in 45 minutes to an hour. And there's not this feeling of reciprocity that happens or obligation because they're feeding me a dinner. And so it's a different person. Um, now, you will get high net worth people at dinner seminars where you've done direct mail, but you'll also get high net worth people from Facebook ads in a big way. I mean, it's pretty common that if we do an event with 15 to 20 people in the room, there's going to be one person in there that's got at least 5 million of investable assets. Um, so it's interesting. It's a very different It's a very different audience. And the cost per person in the seat is almost always the same or less. I don't know of a single event where it's been more, it's cost more to put a person in the room um, than a dinner workshop. But most of the time, it's less. And the tricky thing with us was we were so frustrated at the beginning because you'd have this what I thought was a high show-up rate or high high no-show rate where you'd have 80 people registered and maybe 40, maybe 30 would show up. Mm-hmm. But the quality of the person, the attention you get, if you're not just horrible at doing workshops, which some people are, we all think we're good, um, you'll, you'll do well. And uh, it works. We've even experimented and we're going to experiment, I think, with some midday programs. So mm-hmm. it's different, and people need to understand that. And we really had to get over the thinking we have 80 people registered and only 30 show up. That's just – that's okay for us. The other thing is and, – and this is my theory, and Jonathan, you can kind of correct me on this. So think about when somebody's on Facebook. What's happening, all right? So um, for us – and we don't know your numbers, Jonathan, but for us, a significant amount of our emails – um, get open on mobile, all right? So mm-hmm. let's just assume for a minute that at least 50% of Facebook traffic is is mobile, um, maybe more. Where am I if I'm on Facebook and I'm on my mobile phone? Well, I'm walking from one meeting to another. I'm at home. I'm maybe even watching TV with my family and I'm on there. So when I do something on Facebook, when I respond to an offer on Facebook, it's very impulsive and I might be about 70% engaged and distracted doing something else. So when you think of it like that, somebody actually signs up for a workshop on Facebook while they're with their family or in the backseat of a car going somewhere or you know, the little board at the airport or something like that, it's an impulsive decision. It's not like picking up the phone, calling with an invitation in your hand to make a registration. And so I think... That's at least my theory on why you have a lower show up rate, and it's just kind of just deal with it because we ran some numbers just this week, and the return, not even counting the money we get from managed money, just looking at the annuity revenue, which is which is only half of the revenue that we'll get off a client, it was like five and a half to one. So if I present value the managed money on that, it's still like a nine to ten rate of return for every dollar I spend on steep. And so we just had to get past this thing of, you know what, there's going to be 15 or 20 people in the room instead of 30 to 35 uh, at a workshop, but it's still going to work out well. And my cost for acquisition of a client and my cost per putting somebody in that room is 
at worst the same and most of the time a lot lower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you hit on a really good thing there, Joel, which is, you know, you said you were discouraged early on and made some changes and figured out a way for it to really be productive in your in your marketing. I think that might be another really good expectation thing to talk through, which is if you've done this before and it's different and you didn't see the results you wanted, or maybe it just felt different, um, be willing to be coachable. And I think we had a really good story with you, Joel. I think like fourth quarter last year, the stuff that we ran for Johnson Bernetti was low, admittedly. And we really retooled everything that we did. We did different programs. We changed up the venues. We kind of took a brand new strategy to your market. And the stuff that we've done so far this year has been super productive uh, from both a, re- a revenue standpoint for you and from a marketing standpoint. So uh, if it doesn't work the very first time, I think just being coachable and understanding that there's variables that we can change is really important. The other thing, which is kind of goes full circle to where we started here, which is email. You know, we do capture first name, last name, email, phone, the date people attend, the number of people in their party, and a full mailing address for people. So if we're having an email strategy like we talked about earlier, you really are doing two things at once. You're filling your workshops, but you're also building this pipeline of people that you can continue to market to over time. Um, you mentioned mobile. Uh, our traffic on Facebook is over 90% mobile, and um, that's with targeting people always that are over 55 years old. Traditionally, we think those people are more engaged in de- desktop, and that's cert- simply not the case anymore. And and then I think the other thing you hit on there is the time of response. It, it, I don't know how long it would actually take, Joel, but if I got one of your mailers in my inbox and I decided to open it and call in, I would guess that from the time I decided to register and called a number and gave them my event code and gave them all my name and confirmed the spelling and all, probably take five or six minutes just to get off the phone. Whereas like the average time on our pages is a minute and 30 seconds. So you're hundred percent right. That impulsive, like rapid response is definitely part of the contributing factors, I think, to the engagement that people have, but really good stuff there. I think that you hit on a lot of really key points with your experience there. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, so just to wrap up here, and, and I want to do this again because we can get much deeper into this. And I think, I mean, this has been, I've learned a ton here and I knew a lot of this stuff. So, um, but just backing up, I mean, give us, we've talked about a lot of things here in the hour. Give us one or two lessons, um, maybe things that people don't get that if you could transfer some information to them, Jonathan, you know, they would completely change their outlook on digital marketing or email marketing or just understanding the psyche of the of the um, of the prospective client. Give us just two or three nuggets here. Yeah, I think the first thing that's really top of my mind right now, I spent the last two months building out a course that teaches advisors how to execute social in their practice. And I think, you know, if, if we have a Facebook business page, we just check the box and say we've got a social presence. But kind of going back to what we were saying earlier with building authenticity and a brand and connecting with people on a human level, like that cannot be overstated today. And as Facebook ads become more competitive, as there's more people doing it, as costs continue to go up, um, the, the platform matures and options change, like having a presence on social that you really control and that's really beneficial to your practice is, is really important. Think back 20 years ago to when SEO was a thing for the very first time and like you have a plastic surgery business in LA and all you have to do is, you know, do some ninja tricks with how your site is and all of a sudden you rank and get free traffic. Like today, if you were opened up a brand new plastic surgeon business in LA and tried to get ranked in SEO, you'd be 24, 36 months behind everybody else in your marketplace. I think that's where we're going with organic social. Uh, Right now, uh, Facebook actually refers more clicks to third-party websites 
Like they generate more traffic than any other platform in the world, including Google. If you combine Google organic search and Google um, paid search, and, and you combine the two of those, it's still less traffic than Facebook is referring to businesses' websites. And so we put a lot of time and effort into building our websites and putting great content, even podcasts like this on our sites, but we don't always have as in-depth a strategy to drive traffic to it. And I really think that for people who understand the long-term benefits of organic social, building that platform out today is going to put you light years ahead of people in the future. So I think that just understanding the value of organic content, building a social presence is really important today. I think another thing is um, authenticity. And this goes with email, it goes with uh, organic posts, it goes with uh, advertisements that you do. But trying to not just be as polished as you're typically used to being um, is really, really important in today's world. Um, you mentioned the Kardashians, and I think that's a really good example because like what are their marketable skills? They really they're not like PhDs and you know, they don't create products. Really what they are is they're marketing channels for other people's products. But what they do is they get attention. And once you get attention, you can monetize that any way you want. I think that Kylie Jenner girl is like just over 20 years old or something. And she's the youngest uh, self-made billionaire ever because she has this makeup line and she's not some sort of cosmetic guru, but what she is is she's good at getting attention and she can monetize that in other ways. So getting attention for your business and being authentic as a person, letting people understand who you are as an individual, uh, I think is really key. And then I think the last thing I'll leave you with is kind of referencing back to something we started with earlier, which is like not trying to do everything all at once. Uh, a lot of times we get this idea like, hey, we need to do blog posts, we need to do an email newsletter, we need to do organic social, we need to do um, specific educational seminars. And trying to do everything at once oftentimes just leads us to feeling discouraged and failure. I think picking one or two of these things that are you know really exciting to you and things you're passionate about, maybe deficiencies in your practice currently, trying to implement one or two and setting specific goals to get those things rolling. Um, probably <laughs> I'm an idea person, Joel. And even in this podcast, I feel like I'm a rabbit just jumping in 25 different directions. Uh, I can tend to overwhelm my staff if I say, here's 28 new initiatives we're going to do today. So I think just really being granular on, okay, we're going to have a digital strategy, but the number one and number two most important things are these, these couple of things and just really diving deep on those, nailing them and then and building from there. It's probably uh, something that would really serve a lot of people well. Well, Jonathan, it's been fantastic having you on. Like I said, I know a little bit about this stuff, and, and I've learned a lot, so thank you. Um, thank you for the program you built. I appreciate you telling the story about how, you know, what you've learned in building Steep and the, some of the little missteps you had, and, and I know you're working really hard. I know you and Ruth, your your wife, are just, you know, busting your butts trying to deliver an awesome experience to those of us that are that are using your services. So thank you for that. And once again, uh, those of you in Rainmaker podcast land, um, we appreciate you listening to this. Share this with a friend. Share, share the podcast with a friend in, in our business. I think they'll be helped a lot. And until next time, uh, have a great time. Serve your clients well. They need us right now in a big way, so make sure you're the reassuring voice. So with that said, have a great day. 